Everybody, welcome to the show, y'all. Welcome to the Monday show. So, um, the impeachment of Donald J. Trump is over. I'm going to lead with that. There's plenty to say. I actually have a few segments on that because um, the Democrats pulled a classic Democratic move where they won the right to call um, witnesses, and then they were like, "We're not going to call any witnesses." Just classic, classic, classic Democratic uh, stupidity. Actually, you know, I would say weakness, but it's it's not weakness because it's they wanted to do it this way, and I'll explain why they wanted to do it this way, because they care more about the virtue signaling in the show than the substance. So anyway, there's that. Nathan J. Robinson was uh, let go from The Guardian because he dared to criticize Israel or make a joke on Twitter about Israel. We're going to talk about that. I have a bunch of news clips today. I got some stuff from Newsmax, which of course is always hilarious. We have uh, some Fox News stuff where... A financial advisor is scoffing at the idea of sending people more stimulus money in the middle of a pandemic and a depression. So you're not going to want to miss that. Um, some criticism of Joe Biden from CNN, which is shocking, but it happened. So we'll talk about that as well. All right, a lot of stuff to get to. Without further ado, here we go, baby. The impeachment of Donald J. Trump is over. It's done. And um, the results are the following. 57 senators said guilty. 43 said not guilty. Um, It was 48 Democrats, seven Republicans, and two independents. Um, This means, for my non-American listeners, 57 saying guilty and 43 saying not guilty means he's not guilty, means they failed to get the impeachment through the Senate because you would need 67 votes in order to succeed. So um, now these results are pretty much expected. 
I actually thought you'd probably get like 55 or 56. So the fact that they got 57 means they were able to chip away one or two extra Republican senators, but still fell well short of what they needed in order to do it. So I think the thing that's most interesting to me is that I'm surprised that anybody is surprised by the result. And that really shows you that I think the media does a terrible job of really educating people on this stuff, because if they were educating people, everybody would have understood it's a foregone conclusion. Because not only was he going to get off, it's also like the Democrats didn't even really have a plan to apply the proper pressure or talk to certain senators behind the scenes or make a play to even have a snowball's chance in hell. It was basically doomed from the beginning, but the way the media covered it was irresponsible because they acted like, you know, who knows, it's up in the air. They would, like, have these headlines as if there was a big twist in the case now in favor of, you know, the Democrat side. And it's like, you're not, that's really lying by omission. Because to not give people the context that this was doomed from the beginning is a crucial and important part of really understanding the full picture and really understanding what's going on here. So, of course, this was going to happen. Of course, they were going to lose. Really, ultimately, this was a virtue signaling exercise. The Democrats' main identity has been Trump is really bad and we hate Trump. And so they were just going with that that same mindset moving forward. Um, But here's the part that pisses me off. The part that pisses me off is they actually now breathed life into Trump 2024. That's what they did. He was at his lowest point with the attempted insurrection and the fallout from that. And then with this move, you now help the narrative of Teflon Don again. Like Teflon Don defeated another impeachment, and Trump released a statement on this, gloating about how this is the biggest witch hunt in history, and I'm, uh, I'm fighting back, and I'm winning. And so even though it was the most bipartisan impeachment in U.S. history, it also failed. I mean, you have to keep it real. Beyond that, listen, man, they could have tried to get the same result in a more substantive way. If they used the 14th Amendment, they could have banned him from ever holding public office again in the United States of America, and they wouldn't have needed 67 votes. They would have needed 60. Now, granted, it was 57, so they would have fallen short of that as well, but you would have gotten closer. And so, I mean, the main point here is it, it appears to me that Democrats really do care more about the show and the virtue signal than the substance. Because if they cared about the substance, then you would have tried to do this through the 14th Amendment and you would have had a better plan in order to succeed. But if all you care about is the show, then yeah, there you go. You know, you had your impeachment trial and you can wag your finger and say Trump's really bad, isn't Trump so bad, Trump's so terrible. And, um, you know, you sort of ride that for political reasons. So you can't be surprised at the result. The most important point now is it's time to move on. It's time to move on. Trump no longer defines the political era. He's out of office. Now, he might run again in 2024, and perhaps you guys just helped him a little bit with this failed attempt, but you have to focus on the substantive issues of the day. And I wish they did that from the beginning, instead of even getting diverted and going down the impeachment path. And um, that's how the voters will reward you. If you get them the $2,000 checks, which they're not going to get them. If you actually effectively control COVID-19, 
if you focus on the substance, you'd be much better off. But they'd rather lean into the virtue signal, lean into the show, and um, ultimately lose. And then, by the way, pretend like it's somehow a victory, even though it's not. So time to move on, man. Trump era is done. It's in the rearview mirror. Let the Republicans have their civil war, which they are having. And um, the Democrats need to define themselves in a way that's politically intelligent and also substantive policy-wise. And that would be, you know, what we always talk about on this show. Like I said, defeating COVID-19, raising wages, cutting those $2,000 checks, Medicare for all. I mean, they're obviously not going to do all these things, but this is what they should do. Um, Donald J. Trump, yet again, defeats impeachment. Anybody who ever told you there was like even a prayer of the opposite, it was just never true. You know, and if, if you were going to do this, you had to do it immediately. You know, there was a little bit of a delay. And as soon as there's a delay, the passions of that moment with the attempted insurrection, it tapers off like anything else. So you would have had to do it at the very height. And even then you would have fell short. So it's just like, anyway, it was mismanaged from the beginning. It was sort of unnecessary from the beginning. There's ways to punish him that might actually work, whether it's the 14th Amendment or now that he's out of office, some criminal prosecution coming out of New York or D.C. or elsewhere. Um, But as I said, time to move on and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Okay. Okie dokie, bitch. More on impeachment. So this was a surprise to many people following this during impeachment. After winning a key vote to call witnesses, Democrats back down and decide to call no witnesses at Trump's impeachment trial. In two impeachment trials of Donald Trump, Democrats widely insisted witnesses were key to a full and fair trial. At the first trial, Republicans stopped any witnesses. At the second trial, Democrats stopped any witnesses. Wow. So, um, you know, on my Twitter timeline, people were like really going after the Democrats and saying like, why would you do this? This is the weakest bullshit I've ever seen in my life. Now, here's the reality. The Democrats are actually correct not to open the door and call witnesses. (gasps) Did I really say that? Yes, I did say that. (laughs) Because they, the trial, the impeachment could last a year because they could literally call hundreds of witnesses. And it's already a foregone conclusion. They're going to lose. They're not even going to come close to getting the 67 votes that they need. They were 10 votes short. So they were actually substantively correct to not take up all of the time in the Senate on a stupid virtue signaling exercise about how Trump is so bad. He's already out of office. It's a waste of time. I'm sorry, it is. It's a total waste of time. There are ways to punish him that are more substantive that can actually work, like invoking the 14th Amendment, banning him from ever holding public office again. So the Democrats were correct to do this. However, however, they told you every step of the way that this impeachment is vital and necessary and important, and we care so deeply about it, and it's about protecting the integrity of our democracy. Yay! They told you in no uncertain terms, this is the most substantive thing we can do, the most policy-focused thing we could do. This is an existential threat to democracy if he gets away with this. So they hyped it up like it was super-duper important. It's not a virtue signaling exercise. It's, it's super substantive and important. 
See, now that's why this was Weasley what they did. Because if you really believe that it's that important as they said it was, well, then of course there's no question. And of course you'd call witnesses. Because you want, you know, a full accounting. And you want to get everybody on the record. And you would think that, well, telling the whole story makes it more likely that we'd be able to have justice in this case. But they didn't do it. So what does that tell you? You know what it tells you? They knew all along that it wasn't super-duper important and vital and existential and to protect our democracy. They knew all along what they admitted with this maneuver is that, yes, this was just a virtue signaling exercise. This was just a virtue signaling exercise. It was just a way for us to be like, Trump's really bad and he's still really bad and I'm going to tell you that he's so bad. He's bad. He's bad. Do you like me the more I say that? See, this is the thing. It's like that's their whole, the entire party was defined by that. Trump's really bad. Got it. What else are you in favor of? We got nothing. We're not going to talk about Medicare for all. We're not going to talk about free college. We're not going to talk about the Green New Deal. We're not going to talk about any of those things because we also have donors that we have to please and we're not in favor of those things. So what if I just distract you and virtue signal all day by saying Trump is really bad and you agree that Trump is really bad. So now you're going to think that I'm really fighting for you in other ways, even though I'm not. But Trump's really bad. So here I go. I'm going to pretend like this is incredibly important and vital for the health of our democracy and it's an existential threat and there needs to be justice. And I'm going to prove to you that we care deeply about this fight and I, okay, I know we won the right to have witnesses now, but we're not going to call any witnesses. They never believed the shit they said and if you fell for it, you're a sucker. Because as I said early on, should there be a punishment for what Trump did? Of course there should be. No doubt about it. He did talk out of both sides of his mouth and egg on an attempted insurrection. No doubt about it. So what do you do about that? Well, he's already on his way out of office. He's gone. He's done. That would be the, the, the victory of impeachment is really, let's get him out of office. But he's already out of office. So, okay, what should we do next? Make sure he can never hold public office again. You could have done that through the 14th Amendment, and you could have done it with 60 votes instead of 67 votes. You would have at least had a prayer. But they didn't do it, again, because it's not about anything substantive. They knew this wasn't important. They knew, they knew this was an empty, hollow, virtue-signaling exercise. But this fits the brand, the anti-Trump brand. This is how they can pretend like they're fighting for you, even though they're not fucking fighting for you. So it's so immensely Weasley. Listen, they were correct. They were correct to say no witnesses. That same mindset should have been the mindset that said, we're not even going to try for impeachment again because he's going to be out of office. If anything, we'll just do the 14th Amendment and make sure he never holds public office again. You see what I'm saying? There's a show angle to this, and there's a substantive angle to this. And the Democrats always pick the show angle with no substance. With no substance. Whereas, you know, my perspective is you should always pick the substance angle and forget the show. Fuck the show. Who cares about the show? The substance enough is important. And sometimes you fight and you lose, but if you're fighting in a substantive way, that's all that matters. This was not a substantive fight. If it was a substantive fight and they thought it was a substantive fight, they would have called witnesses. They knew it was virtue signaling all along. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. They won the right to call witnesses and they said, we don't want to call any witnesses. They knew. They knew it was virtue signaling. And they knew this could go on for a year. And they knew, okay, that's a little too much. If it's as important as you guys said it was, you would have called the witnesses. But you know it's not as important as you pretended like it was. They're, always, they're going to play everybody for suckers. That's what they do. They play everybody for suckers. They'll give you the show. They'll give you the kabuki theater. 
I'm, I'm good and they're bad and Trump's bad and we care about democracy. They'll give you all that shit. But, you know, when it comes down to really fighting on the things that matter, I hear crickets. All this time, all this effort should be put into getting everybody the $2,000 checks. Recurring, by the way, is what I think really should, should be in it. Or $15 minimum wage. It's not a coincidence at the same time Biden was backing off the $15 minimum wage. The Democrats are wagging their finger and saying, we're going to impeach him. And this is the existential threat of our time. It's like a diversion, you know, like here. I'm buckling on the actual core substantive issues that would help so many people while I, I give you a show which tricks you into thinking I'm such a crusader for what's right. It's sad, man. It really is sad. Listen, again, they made the right decision to not call any witnesses. That just proves they were lying about how important they thought it was and how important they told you this case was. They knew from the beginning it wasn't important. They knew. They fucking knew. So everybody needs to understand what's going on in that Democratic mind and how gross and weaselly this is. And um, time to move on is really the point. Trump's gone. He might run again in 2024. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Right now, he's gone. So your politics can't simply be defined by Trump bad. I know that's hard for a lot of people, but I guarantee you, if you leave that behind and you start focusing on the issues, it'll be a hell of a lot better. Okay. All right, next. Speaking of the checks, let's talk about the checks. Dave Ramsey is a financial advisor. This is a guy who has a radio show. Uh, um, he's been involved in business for a long time. He's worth about half a billion dollars. And he went on Fox News to talk about the peasants and their money troubles during this pandemic and this depression. Let's see what he has to say about stimulus checks. interesting perspective. You talk to Americans across the country every day on your radio program. Yeah. What, what, what do you believe is the right number or the right answer for a for the next stimulus check? Well, I don't believe in a stimulus check because if $600 or $1,400 changes your life, you were pretty much screwed already. You got other issues going on. Uh, you have a you have a career problem. You have a debt problem. You have a relationship problem. You have a mental health problem. Something else is going on. If $600 changes your life, spoken like an asshole with half a billion dollars. Spoken like a guy who doesn't have money problems and is incapable of seeing the world through anybody else's perspective. Look at how casual and flippant and nonchalant he is about survival checks. These are survival checks. He says, if $600 or $1,400 changes your life, you were screwed already. But why do people need that money? Maybe it has something to do with the fact that there's a pandemic and a, substance, and, a, and a subsequent depression. So it's not like, you know, people woke up one day and decided, I'm going to be extra lazy today and have no moral core or work ethic. 
and I'm going to sit back and wait for money. No, it's not like people woke up one day and said, let me stop trying. It's that the situation was out of their control. It was out of everybody's control. And there are consequences to a pandemic and a depression. And so people are dealing with that reality the best they can. And so really when we talk about stimulus checks, we're just talking about the government giving the people their own money back. That's all we're talking about. And people need help in a situation like this because this is no fault of their own that they're struggling. He says, oh, you have bigger problems. You know, you have a career problem or a debt problem or a mental health problem or a pandemic and a depression problem. Pandemic and economic depression through no fault of their own. I mean, guys, don't take my word for it. You go look at the economic numbers. It's staggering. Even before the crisis, nearly 80% of Americans were living paycheck to paycheck. That's before. 40% of Americans are food insecure. And that was, you know, just a few months back in the middle of this pandemic and depression. 40% of the country. So is the idea that, well, 40% of the country is just really lazy or something and they got to work harder to get their food. How stupid do you have to be? And let's be clear. The system has been rigged in favor of the wealthy for a very long time. I'm thinking about that Rand Corporation study, which found that basically from 1974 until today, the top 1% has stolen $47 trillion from the bottom 90%. Again, this isn't Kyle Kalinske speaking. This is a Rand Corporation study speaking. What they say is, if you just keep the wealth distribution the same as it was after World War II, when we had stronger unions, better regulation, and, and things of that nature, if you keep the wealth distribution the same, the bottom 90% would be $47 trillion wealthier. That's an extra $1,144 per month for every single American in the bottom 90%. So the system has been rigged by the wealthy, the corporations, the well-connected, the billionaires, and they've been stealing from regular people. And then you add on top of all this a pandemic and an economic depression, and this guy goes out there and wants to blame the people who are struggling as if they made a choice to be lazy or have no work ethic or whatever. There's this mindset, this pervasive mindset on the far right. It's this idea that it's, it's some flaw in your character if you're struggling with money issues. There has to be something wrong with you if you're struggling with money issues. But that presupposes that the system makes sense and is already a meritocracy. And of course, the system doesn't make sense, and it's not a meritocracy. There are people who work full-time jobs, and they don't make enough money to survive. The minimum wage is not a living wage. Could you imagine working a full-time job? and still not making enough money to survive. And this guy turns around and blames you as if you did something wrong. No, perhaps the system needs changing. Perhaps we need to value people's work. Perhaps we need to set a floor that's a reasonable floor. I mean, over 30% of the country can't pay their mortgage or their rent. Again, is it the fault of the 30% of the country? No, of course not. There's a pandemic and a depression. I mean, it's just amazing how they can reframe these issues where it's always a personal flaw. It's always a character failing. It's never a systemic one. It's never like, hey, 
the rules are just fucked up and people are not adequately taken care of for what they produce. I mean, it, it really is out of this world, man. It's stunning. It's stunning how much, how biased this perspective is and how convenient it is for somebody with half a billion dollars. Because now he gets to go to bed every night thinking, well, I made it because I'm just a genius and I'm just a better person than people who are struggling. And remember, keep all this in mind. When the other half the time on Fox News, they pretend like we're, we are the people who are fighting for the working class. Really? This is the most elitist bullshit I've ever heard in my life. That's what this is. You're not fighting for the working class. This is the exact opposite of that. This is shitting all over them when they're going through a hard time and they didn't do anything wrong. I can't imagine looking at this situation and blaming individuals. Clearly, clearly, the problem is the pandemic. The problem is the depression. The problem is the, the fact that we have a government that's so bought and owned by the wealthy that they get bailed out quickly and the people get crumbs. You know, that's the other part of this. They never, like these guys never said anything like this when it came to Wall Street bailouts, for example. You had these financial you had these giant financial institutions make horrendous decisions that bankrupted themselves and tanked the global economy, and then the government rushed in, bailed them out with no strings attached, and they paid bonuses to the biggest failures of CEOs you could ever imagine. And guys like this don't come out and say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This is a moral failing on your part. He doesn't say that. For them, it's always viewed as like, well, the welfare for the rich is still somehow earned, even though it's the, the exact opposite. It's not earned at all. But any help for the regular person well, that's unacceptable. It boggles the mind, man. These guys are as elitist as it gets. And the fact that he has an accent doesn't fucking change that. Because he's representing the 1%. That's clear. All right, I got one more on this guy. One more on David Ramsey. Finance professional David Ramsey uh, spoke with Fox News. He already bashed the idea of stimulus checks for people in the middle of a pandemic and a depression. Well, now he's going to talk about student loans. that student loans being forgiven is going to stimulate the economy, that assumes that people were getting ready to pay them off this year and instead would use that same $40,000 that they were getting ready to pay off their student loan and stimulate the economy with it. Again, that's economic hogwash. It's smoke and mirrors. It's simply not going to happen. Dave, I just think there's a, there's a moral hazard doing this. You're oh, young, absolutely. You, you signed a financial contract. You have an obligation to pay that money back. Incredible. Incredible. So they're talking about the moral hazard of eliminating or reducing student loan debt. Again, have you ever heard these guys say this when it comes to bailing out Wall Street? The government rushed in and bailed out Wall Street in the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. These are people who made the decision to bankrupt their companies and tank the global economy. They made risky bets and played hot potato with toxic assets. 
And then the government rushed in and bailed them out. Nobody ever said moral hazard. How are they going to learn their lesson? They're never going to learn their lesson. This is just going to happen again now. We're incentivizing bad behavior. Nobody ever said that. But when it's for students, for students who are having trouble paying back their loans because of the freaking pandemic and economic depression, all of a sudden, moral hazard, you signed a document, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Martin Luther King said it best. We have um, socialism for the wealthy and rugged individualism for the poor. We have this, you know, anarcho-capitalist laissez-faire system for the poor, where it's like, go fuck yourself if you didn't make it. If you're a small business and you go under, fuck you. If you're a, a, a giant mega multinational corporation and you go under, oh, they rush in and get subsidized all day long because they pay their bribes to the politicians. So the politicians look out for them. But it's amazing. The mindset is amazing. So that you've got to earn it. Just imagine for a second these same arguments being made about like elementary school. In this country, we have public school. We have elementary school, middle school, high school. We have public school. Could you imagine chastising some parents because you made a deal to pay for your kids to go to elementary school and you can't afford it? Moral hazard. We're not going to help you. The way society looks at that type of school is like, what do you mean? That's just part of being in a developed civilized society is like we take certain things like education off the table. So to, to badger somebody and say you need, to, you, know, you need to put yourself in financial trouble just to pay for a kid to go to school, it's absurd. It's no different for higher education. It's no different. The sa- exact same mindset that everybody has when it comes to elementary school, middle school, and high school, just apply that to college. It's part of living in a civilized society that people need to have the opportunity to get, to get educated, to have a shot to make it. I mean, it's really pretty simple. And then he says that if we forgive student loans, that's not going to stimulate the economy. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Because the people who have student loan debt, you know, if you take that off the table for them, the idea that everybody's just going to save it, that's not going to happen. People are struggling. They need to pay the bills. They need to pay the bills. They need to pay the mortgage, or they need to pay the rent, or maybe they need to lease a new car. That money will go towards things, so it will help the economy. You know, it, funny enough, where his argument would apply is for the ultra-wealthy, that, like, if you give them bigger tax breaks, you know what they do? They don't actually use that, well, I'm going to open up a new business, and I'm going to invest over here, and I'm going to do this over here. They don't do it. The data shows, and they've looked at this for decades now, the data shows that when you do trickle-down economics or economics, you cut taxes for the wealthy, they end up hoarding that money, and it doesn't get used in the broader economy. You can you know, put it in some Cayman Islands bank account. Think about that. The argument he's making, as if it applies to reducing or eliminating student loan debt, it actually applies to the wealthy, and it's a reason why you shouldn't cut taxes for the wealthy. In terms of doing it for, the, for the, even the upper middle class, but definitely middle class and, and poor If you help them out in any way, whether it's a stimulus check or whether it's uh, eliminating student loan debt or reducing it, there are going to be gigantic economic upsides from that for sure. For sure. He calls it economic hogwash. Nonsense. And by the way, this whole conversation I think is moot anyway because as I've pointed out to you guys before, there's such a thing as a principled belief as well. You understand what I'm saying? So it's one thing to talk about, you know, eliminating student loan debt as if it will work. Will this work? That's one conversation, the utility of it. 
but there's also just a conversation to be had about should that even exist in the first place? It's like saying, um, if we abolish indentured servitude, will that work? Or will the work that the, the indentured servants did, is that so important that we kind of need the indentured servants? If you have that conversation, you sound crazy to people, right? Because we all have a principled belief that indentured servitude is wrong. So it doesn't matter if it works or there are upsides, you know? Will it work if we get rid of Jim Crow? I mean, there's a lot of things that help the economy as part of Jim Crow. What a ridiculously immoral and unethical conversation. As a matter of principle, Jim, the Jim Crow South was incorrect. And it's the same thing with student loan debt. It's like with medical debt. Medical debt is one of the top causes of bankruptcy in the United States of America. There is no other developed country that even has a concept of medical debt. It's one of the top causes of bankruptcy here. So people could say, will universal health care work? What are the downsides of universal health care? But again, if you believe it as a matter of principle that we shouldn't have medical debt, then that whole conversation is moot anyway. Because it's like, it doesn't even matter if there are some downsides, which maybe they are, there are, maybe there aren't. As a matter of principle, it shouldn't exist. Student loan debt shouldn't exist. Medical debt shouldn't exist. That's not too much to ask for a civilized society. But look at how they talk about it. The idea, they really try to make people believe that it's dumb to want to get rid of student loan debt, that it's stupid. That, like, you're ridiculous if that's something you believe. Meanwhile, look at all the money we spend on bailing out Wall Street. Look at all the money we spend on the military-industrial complex. Guys, just a few years ago, they passed an increase in the military budget. They do it every year, by the way. But a few years ago, they did, like, an $80 billion increase from year to year in the military budget. And there was a, a bill for free college. You know how much it cost? About $60 billion. You could have had free college for the entire country for just the increase from one year to the next in the military budget, and not a single person said, how are we going to pay for that? That's too expensive. They just did it. So you could just do it, and it's cheaper with free college, but that's when they tried out all these, how are you going to pay for it? I don't even know how we're going to pay for it. How are we going to pay for it? going to pay for it? They only trot it out when it's something to help the people. If it's endless war, they just view it as like, why are we even having the conversation about how we can pay for it? It's a moral necessity, so we have to do it anyway. That's the fucking point when it comes to things that really matter, like education, like healthcare. That's how people should be viewing these things. And also, by the way, it's still, that's not even perfectly analogous because at least when it comes to healthcare, we save trillions of dollars if we move to a Medicare for all system. That's not me speaking, that's a study from the University of Massachusetts Amherst speaking. So, Jesus, it's so frustrating. Look at how smug and elitist these people are. They're not your friend, they don't care about the working class. Every now and then they'll posture like, you know, they're for the regular guy and gal, but it's not true. It's not true, and this is such a clear example of it. Okay. I'm going to take a break, and then when we come back, um, we're going to go to Nathan J. Robinson. He was in a little bit of hot water. He was in a little bit of hot water, and we will dissect that story for you. Stay right there.
Talk about Nathan J. Robinson. Nathan J. Robinson is a lefty writer, and he's probably most known as the Current Affairs magazine guy. He's got this magazine, Current Affairs, which is a very good uh, magazine, in my opinion. Um, he wrote, I loved his piece on Noam Chomsky. I thought it was great, and it really sort of mirrored how I feel about Chomsky, and he apparently came into politics a very similar way I did. Um, him meaning uh, Nathan Robinson, not Chomsky. He, Chomsky was one of his like introductions and intellectual heroes. And Anyway, so I share that um, <clears throat> with Nathan J. Robinson. He also wrote a great article on Jordan Peterson and like that phenomenon, and there, was a, there were a few others, too. I think, was it Mayor Pete? He wrote another one on Mayor Pete that was great. Anyway, he's a good writer. He's written a bunch of stuff I love. There are some things I'm not a fan of. Like, I think he pretty unfairly went after um, rising Crystal and Sager. It was just too, it was too overreaching. It's like the argument was way too close to, like, Sager is equivalent to, you know, whatever, white supremacists and far-right extremists and you know, that's why that show is like a pipeline to terrible right-wing beliefs when, honestly, the bulk of the evidence is in the exact opposite direction. That if anything, a show like Rising, there's more of a pipeline from right-wing views to left-wing views because Crystal, I think, deconverts more people than Sagar converts to right-wing views, and um, she's even moved him over time. So anyway, I digress. There's things I disagree with him about. There's things I agree with him about uh, on. Um, so, but what happened recently is wild. Look at this. One of the most serious threats to free speech is the silencing of criticism of the government of Israel. I have now found this out the hard way, having just been fired as a Guardian columnist for sending a tweet about U.S. military aid to Israel. Wow. Okay, so I'm gonna, here, here are his tweets. Now remember, this is at the time where we were desperately in need of COVID relief, and they drafted a bill, and then like hand in hand with that was a giant unnecessary subsidy to Israel that was part of like the appropriations for the COVID relief. And so Nathan Robinson sees this and he says, did you know that the U.S. Congress is not actually permitted to authorize any new spending unless a portion of it is directed towards buying weapons for Israel? It's the law. And he says, or if not actually the written law, then so ingrained in political custom as to functionally be distinguishable from law. So, um, now, to be clear, that's of course not true. Um, so if you want to be like really literal about it, you could be like, you're telling a falsehood and this is fake news. But it w- really, it's an attempt to be sarcastic because he saw COVID relief spending. They slipped in hundreds of millions of dollars for Israel. And so he's like, yeah, apparently they can't do anything without uh, giving Israel money. So, yes, it's an attempt at sarcasm. And he's poking fun at something that... Um, is real. Like, it's real in the sense that all the time we give them more money. All the time we give them more money, and they don't need it, deserve it, 
we have a country here where we can't even have clean water in Flint, Michigan. Our infrastructure gets a grade of D plus, And in COVID relief, we're sending them money. It's insanity. It's insanity. So anyway, yes, you can and should be allowed to talk about that. You can and should be allowed to talk about um, it sarcastically. Well, what happened was um, somebody at The Guardian emailed him and basically said, this is fake news. This is not allowed. This is not okay. And um, we're going to go ahead and make you pull that down. And maybe there'll be consequences if you don't. You're free to say whatever you want, but it's probably in your best interest to take that down. Now, here, in my opinion, is where Nathan J. Robinson was wrong. He pulled it down. He pulled it down. He basically emailed back and apologized. And he was saying that, listen, I, at that point I learned there are boundaries and there are things you can and can't say. And effectively he was saying, I, I sort of needed the money from my guardian job, so I'm just going to have to live within those parameters, and it is what it is even though I don't like it. So then what happened was interesting because he, he accommodated them, and then apparently the next few times that he was supposed to send an article or he was waiting to hear back, they sort of ghosted him a little bit. And then eventually they told him, like, sorry, we're, you know, we're terminating our, our business relationship with you. And so that, at that point was when he came out and told the whole story. So, listen, in my opinion, the mistake was actually pulling down the tweets and playing ball with them. That was, that was the mistake. Now, I get it. He's in a position where he needed that money, so I guess he felt like I have to play by the rules. But therein lies the whole problem. Like, it's coercive and it's controlling and this is why you're in a situation where you only get certain narratives that are pervasive in mainstream media culture, because you really do have bosses lording over you and demanding ideological rigidity. And so really, effectively, there is no real free press. It's like, yes, you can go to independent outlets, like he could write this in, in Current Affairs, his magazine. But in terms of going to work for a legacy outlet, even ones that are nominally further left, like The Guardian, look at the result. Look at what happened. So again, really, I think the main criticism of Nathan is that you should never pull him down in the first place. You know? And he even admits that in an article. He's like, yeah, maybe that's the fair criticism of me, is that I shouldn't have played ball to begin with. But like, here you go, man. Here you go. And sometimes the controls are more subtle. I think oftentimes, just like manufacturing consent lays out, it's almost in the hiring process where you get the real filtering of views that are allowed or not, or not allowed. That's why you see Wolf Blitzer on CNN for 87,000 hours a day is because they know he's not going to rock the boat 99% of the time. Every now and then he has a moment, but the overall majority of the time he's a robot. And they want that. So Nathan Robinson found out the hard way, hey, there are some things you're not going to touch, son. And he listened. But now at least he's blowing the whistle and saying, look at how bullshit this is. It was just censorship and deplatforming because I said something sarcastic that criticized Israel. It really is amazing. And remember, this really is a, a pervasive issue, man. I mean, we've had, remember, in order to get hurricane flood relief money, you needed to sign something saying you won't support BDS. I think that was in Houston. There's a number of these things. There's a number of instances of social media outlets pulling down pro-Palestinian activist groups and their nominal explanation is, oh, they're anti-Semitic. But you, you read it and you find out there's nothing anti-Semitic. They just define, you know, anything that's critical of the Israeli government as anti-Semitic. So 
So it's a way to like game the discourse and censor and deplatform and not allow certain views. And the censorship has is, is gone way too far. And this is just such a clear example of it right here. Again, I would say you should have never played ball with them to begin with. But he said, you know, I get it. He needed the money. I got you. But that says a lot. You, nobody should ever accept that level of control, you know, when it comes to freedom of speech, freedom to speak your mind. Um, you got to have a conscience. And sometimes that has to lead as opposed to the pragmatic, like, yeah, I'll just sort of go along to get along. And I'm sure he rationalized it by saying the net good I do by not touching that issue, but hitting on a bunch of other important issues, the net good outweighs the bad. But, you know, you could rationalize all day long. At the end of the day, you ain't free. That's not free discourse. And um, at least he's telling the story now. And I hope there's strong pushback against the Guardian. Um, And, you know, it's not just the Guardian, like I said. I'm sure that there's a similar dynamic at uh, most mainstream media outlets. So here we are. Oh, one final thing. Nathan was sort of on the record and well-known for being a critic of the idea of cancel culture. And he would act like it's not really real. That was his take. And now he effectively got canceled. And so he's trying to make an argument that's like, no, 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 I'm not a hypocrite because I've meant it in the context of this and not that, not buying it, Nathan. Um, There's a reason why it's not like when I or, you know, some other pro free speech lefties, you know, it's not like when myself or Glenn Greenwald or somebody else is defending some odious figure that like, we agree with the shit that they're saying. Of course we don't. It's, it's always the case that we're talking about the principle is the important thing, because once you violate that principle, there's no going back. And so the same thing that leads people to cheer the deplatforming of far-right people, well, guess what? The week after, it's fucking Antifa, and all of a sudden, you don't like it. And that's exactly what happens. You could cheer the deplatforming of Reddit the Donald or whatever it was, but then Chapo Trap House goes. And you have no leg to stand on if you're like, I wanted them gone, but not me. So you still want the censorship. You just want to have different censors. No, you have, to, you have to oppose it on principle. It's the only way. It's a package deal. If they go, a lot of you go. Okay? Obviously, it's not okay to ever do direct threats of violence or things of that nature, doxing, harassment. But those are the lines need to be very clear and very limited. And so I, I don't buy his argument of like, yeah, I'm still... Against cancel culture and don't think it's real, but for me, don't like nah, man. Just hold the L. All right, you were wrong in a lot of the stuff you said that was like anti-cancel culture. It is real. It is real. Is it exaggerated sometimes? Sure. Is it like one of the only issues on the right that they always talk about? Yes. The real response is they're guilty of it just as much as the left is, if not more. Of course, they go. They love canceling people who they disagree with, as they pretend like they're crusaders for free speech. So that's the real response. Not that cancel, cancel culture isn't real. It's that it's all too real, and everybody's involved in it and engaged in it, and it's wrong at every level. So anyway, shouldn't have been fired, but should have never played ball to begin with. And, um, you know, this is, this is the media. You need to know this is what the media is like. Okie dokie. Next.
Newsmax is continuing to stake a position to the right of Fox News. Um, but this is my favorite clip because it shows just how much they've lost the plot. I'm acting very optimistic at where we are because America is a center-right nation. We're not a nation that embraces socialism. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I just I just hope that uh, either these these uh, Republicans who are joining the socialists right now and I mean like I said it's got to be dra- it's, it's maddening to me. I can only imagine how you know conservatives feel in the Republican Party watching uh, all of these Republicans basically sign on to the Democrat social ag- uh, socialist agenda. Hell, Romney's proposing full-blown communism right now with a with a uh, 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 universal basic income. It's absolutely incredible. That's amazing. Um, and these people have no idea what communism is. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. Romney's proposing communism with a universal basic income bill. I, I need everybody to understand something. Universal basic income is actually, you can support it and have a variety of ideologies. You know, there are right-wing versions of UBI. There are left-wing versions too, but there are definitely right-wing versions of UBI. You know, so for example, Milton Friedman was for a version of UBI. And the idea in the minds of right-wingers is, hey, what if we drastically eliminated, eliminated, excuse me, drastically limited, can't talk, um, the size of the social safety net, or maybe even eliminate the social safety net, get rid of like, the alphabet programs, as they call it, because there's so many you know, acronyms or whatever they are, um, get rid of them and just replace that with one block payment to people. Now, what I don't like about that right-wing approach is that usually what they're talking about is replacing a certain amount in value with a lower number. So in other words, you might get the equivalent of $1,500 a month from a variety of programs from using the social safety net. And then they would want to get rid of that 1500 in support you have and replace it with like 1000 or 800 So that's a net cut in your benefits, which is, yeah, that's not good. That's a right-wing idea. They want you to get less help, not more. And so that's why I would oppose a right-wing version of UBI, where you limit or eliminate the social safety net and just do a block payment. But if you want to talk about doing a UBI on top of the current existing social safety net or simplifying the social safety net and doing a UBI as long as the amount of money and support that people are getting is equal to or more than what they get now, then I'm in favor of it. In fact, universal basic income, I've told you guys this before, universal basic income um, hopped my list of one of the most important policies. Before, I used to not support it. Then I supported it but didn't really prioritize it. Now I support it and prioritize it. It's one of my top policies because the best way to get help to people, especially in a pandemic and a depression, is to cut a check directly to them. So, but anyway, you can, you can support UBI as a right-wing libertarian. You can support UBI as a believer in social democracy or a libertarian socialist. You could support it from a, in a variety of different ways and different versions of it. So anyway, my point is, these guys, they don't know anything. Like, they're talking on Newsmax and being confident in their tone, but they don't know anything. 
They know absolutely nothing, as if UBI is full communism. Like, what? You want to back that up at all? No, of course he can't. He can't. Because they just, they don't like Mitt Romney because Romney is anti-Trump. They don't like Mitt Romney because Romney is anti-Trump, so they're ripping Mitt Romney, saying he's a full-blown communist or some shit. And by the way, hilarious, laugh along with me, Donald Trump was for the $2,000 payments. Donald Trump was for them. So is, is Donald Trump a full-blown communist? They didn't say that. Why didn't they say that? Because again, these networks, Newsmax and One American News Network, they're not ideological at all. They're, they're the most simplistic and dumb networks you can imagine because their whole worldview is Trump good, everybody else bad. Trumpism good, everything else bad. And it's actually not even Trumpism because, like I said, they're not actually ideological. It's all like visceral bullshit. And right now the feeling is like, well, Mitt Romney supported impeachment against Trump, so fuck him. Now we're just going to call him a communist. But it's the reason he supported universal basic income, so you think that makes him a communist. Well, when Trump is for $2,000 checks, that at least makes him a socialist in your eyes, right? But no, they don't say it. They're just incredibly dumb, man. You know, I find it amazing that some people can talk about politics seemingly all day, every day, and just know nothing about policy. You know, I mean, this is a great example of it. Newsmax, One American News Network, Dave Rubin, (laughs) another good example of that. How do you talk so much about this when you don't know anything? You don't know anything. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, you know, but I know some shit. Like, what the fuck? Mitt Romney is a full-blown communist. Can you imagine uttering that sentence or believing it? Okay. Okay. Let's move on, and I'll tell you what's going on with Saudi Arabia. I warned the last time we talked about this issue that uh, you got to read the fine print. With Biden, you always have to read the fine print. I wish that wasn't the case, but it is. There's been a number of executive orders that he signed that the headlines were wonderful, and then you read the details and you're like, this is bullshit. One of them was the private prison one, where the headlines made it seem like he's going to get rid of private prisons. Then the details are, no, 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 I'm only going to get rid of private prisons that were contracted with, was it the Department of Justice? I think it was the Department of Justice. And there's only like 14,000 prisoners in Department of Justice prisons. And there's over like 100,000, 116,000, I think the number was, in um, private prisons. So he could have banned all U.S. government agencies from contracts with private prisons. He didn't. So, for example, ICE, 
67% of their prisons are private prisons. His executive order did not say, we're also not going to re-up the ICE contracts with private prisons. It was just the Department of Justice. So in other words, it was a virtue signaling move that really the substance is not there. You could say it's a baby step in the right direction, but really, really the point of it was to be misleading, was to get the accolades while not really changing anything. By America executive order. Again, baby step in the right direction, but he didn't go all the way to say, no, products that the U.S. government buys need to be made in America. He just changed the rules a little bit to get a few more of the products that the U.S. government buys made in America. So again, I don't like this fact, but it is what it is, and i got to tell you guys the truth. A lot of these executive orders are Weasley, and you know they make it seem like we're going to do an amazing thing, and then it's like, well, not really. You didn't really do it. It was very weak. Well, now we get another example of something similar. Advocates cheered when President Biden announced an end to U.S. support for offensive military operations in Yemen, but questions are now being raised about what will actually change. The Pentagon has said it halted intelligence sharing related to offensive operations, but that it is also reviewing how best to implement the new policy. The Biden administration has also appointed to its suspension, has also pointed, excuse me, to its suspension of two precision-guided precision bomb sales to Saudi Arabia approved late in the Trump administration. But the administration has also made clear it will continue defending Saudi Arabia from attacks, including after, including after one this past week at an airport near the kingdom's border with Yemen that, um, that singed a civilian plane. And the Pentagon has previously characterized U.S. military support for Saudi Arabia, including intelligence sharing, as largely defensive. The question at hand now is what the administration will consider offensive support versus defensive. There's the trick. There's the trick. So originally, the headlines were like, we're not going to support Saudi Arabia and the genocide in Yemen anymore because it's wrong. Those are the original headlines. Now we get some more details. They say, oh, we're still going to help Saudi Arabia, but we're going to make sure it's only, we're only going to help when it's defensive, not offensive. I'm supposed to trust you and your judgment on what's defensive and offensive. We're supposed to trust you on that. You're just going to do whatever you guys want to do, and you're going to say it's defensive in nature. I mean, they can make an argument that the whole thing has been defensive. They could say that. It's bullshit, but they could say that. They don't have to prove it. There's no enforcement mechanism here. So, this, really, this is bullshit. But yet again, man, yet again, they're being Weasley. Now, like, I want to be kind and fair. Is it possible there's going to be a net decrease in the number of, you know, strikes that we help with or something? Possible, yeah, of course. But is that good enough? No. Listen, these are life and death issues. There is no damning with faint praise crap here, Okay. Saudi Arabia is committing a genocide in Yemen. The whole backstory is wild. You had the Houthis, the Shia Houthis, a militia, basically overthrow the Sunni government, which was more of a puppet of Saudi Arabia. And um, so in response, the Saudi government did an all-out offensive. They've been basically starving the country, blockading the country. There's an embargo starving them, um, making, making it so medicine can't get in. It's a humanitarian catastrophe, and also they've been very willy-nilly in how their bombing campaigns go. Like, they end up killing lots of civilians. So there is no, like, there is no middle path. Like, you know, they're doing a genocide and killing civilians and starving people, but what if we, what if we help them slightly less with their genocide? Now, we're supposed to cheer that? We're supposed to be like, yay! No. 
the, the thing that has to be done is immediately cut off all weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. You kick them off the UN Human Rights Council immediately, and you try to find some way diplomatically to pressure them to stop doing a genocide in Yemen. Not like, we're going to stop helping them, but what I mean is we're only going to stop helping them if it's offensive. When it's defensive, we're going to keep helping them. Honestly, I would argue none of it's defensive. None of it's defensive. They're doing a war of aggression. A country that didn't attack them, was no threat to attack them. You know, there was internal affairs going on there, and they said, no, we want a Sunni leader, so we're going to try to topple the Shia government. And we're going to do whatever we have to do in the process. Starve people, keep medicine away from them. I mean, the numbers are ridiculous. And then, of course, listen, there, there have been reports on the ground of there'll be some bombing campaign, and a bunch of civilians will die, and people will see it was American-made weapons. That breeds resentment against the United States of America. Rightly so. Rightly so. You could cut off all arms there. could do it. You could force them to do the right thing, but no. So anyway, um, I hate that this is the case, but it is the case. You can never just trust the headlines. You've got to read the details of what's going on here. And the details, there's always stuff in the fine print that's really gross. And so I think that they think you're supposed to cheer helping carrying out a genocide slightly less. It's absurd. Okay. All right, next. I really, actually really, really like this next story. Really, really enjoy this next one. CNN host Fareed Zakaria went after Biden on the issue of foreign policy, and he did it with an interesting argument. Check it out. Since Donald Trump pulled out of the Iran deal, Joe Biden and his top advisors have made clear that the withdrawal was a serious mistake, one that dramatically undermined America's credibility with the world and created a more dangerous Middle East. The deal had placed Iran in a box imposing strict limits on its nuclear program. Without them, Tehran was moving ever closer to nuclear weapons. So you'd assume that once in office, the Biden administration would be searching for a quick way to return to the deal. No, it turns out. Both the Secretary of State and the Director of National Intelligence say that rejoining the deal is a long ways away. They insist that Iran first come back into compliance, but that's largely a tactic to avoid confronting the issue. Diplomats could easily find a method for the two countries to rejoin simultaneously. Many of Biden's officials helped negotiate the Iran Accord, and argued strenuously it was the best deal that the United States could get. Have they changed their minds? On China, the administration has been falling over itself to prove how tough it is. The American readouts from both Biden's call with Xi Jinping and Secretary of State Blinken's call with his counterpart, Yang Jishu, sound less like diplomatic documents than pieces of performance art designed for a domestic audience. They're studded with words like coercive and unfair, 
and have stern vows to hold Beijing accountable for its efforts to threaten stability. Now, the Biden campaign described Trump's trade war with China as an unmitigated disaster that cost Americans money and jobs. When Biden was asked in an August interview whether he would keep Trump's tariffs, he answered no and offered a wholesale critique of Trump's China policies. But they are not being reversed. It is all under review. On Cuba, during the campaign, Biden attacked Trump's policies and pledged a return to the Obama-era efforts to relax the embargo and engage with Cuba, arguing that these policies would be more effective in changing the island nation than the decades-long policy of isolation and sanctions. But nothing has been reversed. Again, it's all under review. Now, one would have thought Biden and his advisors had already spent the past four years carefully reviewing Trump's policies since they publicly concluded that they were disastrous. I suspect Biden's foreign policy team is trying to play domestic politics, hoping to deflect Republican criticism of being soft on U.S. foes. It won't work. Already, Republicans have sensed weakness, and they are pursuing a campaign to keep the Iran deal from ever being resurrected, which would then be touted as a great Republican victory. On China, Cliff Sims, a former top Trump official, responded to that tough readout of the Biden she call by suggesting that it was a lie and that the real story was the Biden selling out the country with Chinese Communist Party business deals. Meanwhile, the same day, Mike Pompeo questioned the patriotism of Democrats and accused them of trying to funnel taxpayer dollars to the Chinese Communist Party. Let me confidently predict that no matter how aggressive Biden's policies, Marco Rubio, Tom Cotton, and Mike Pompeo will accuse him of appeasement. Democrats should keep in mind that when they run scared on foreign policy, they never win. Lyndon Johnson sent half a million troops into Vietnam for fear that Republicans would say he was soft on communism. After 9-11, Democrats eagerly voted for the Patriot Act and the Iraq War. John Kerry was a war hero with three Purple Hearts and, like Joe Biden, voted to authorize the invasion of Iraq. In return, Republicans smeared him as a coward who had lied about his war record. If you think about Barack Obama's foreign policy successes, the Paris Climate Accords, the Bin Laden raid, the Iran nuclear deal, the opening to Cuba, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, he achieved them because he was an unusual figure, willing to question bipartisan groupthink in Washington, take risks, and above all, stop conducting foreign policy on Republican terms. That was a really interesting piece. Um, rare that you see on CNN a criticism of Joe Biden saying he's too far right. But that's exactly what that was. Now, I do think that um, the substance of the criticism is a little bit off, and I'll get to that in a second. But it, the, the overarching picture here, he's correct about. Um, now, it's partly true that the reason why Joe Biden is doing the things that he's doing is because it's the old school new Democrat triangulation idea of like, well, I'm going to be above the fray. I'm not like these crazies on the left and I'm not like these crazies on the right. I'm going to do like the reasonable centrist thing. And so he's continuing a lot of the Trump stuff on foreign policy, thinking like that'll prevent Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio from coming after him. 
Well, Pari points out that's not going to happen. It doesn't matter what you do. They're always going to say it's bad, terrible, and wrong, and you're weak or whatever. Um, but where he's wrong is he doesn't get that a lot of what Biden is doing is not just domestic policy posturing, also because he himself is kind of like a moderate Republican and to some extent agrees with a lot of this stuff. Um, but beyond that, listen, it's the influence of money in politics and that foreign policy establishment. I mean, Blinken being Secretary of State, Blinken has taken a tremendous amount of money from all of these foreign government allies of ours, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Israel, and like, so they're going to do the bidding of those countries. There is a kind of soft corruption here, which is unacceptable. And when you look at the foreign policy establishment in the military industrial complex, we all know, uh, it's like Lloyd Austin, who's his secretary of defense, I think it is. He was sitting on the board of Raytheon. He made like over a million dollars from Raytheon. And now he's partly in charge of our foreign policy. Think about that, man. Think about that. So ultimately, what the administration is going to do is going to reflect what Raytheon, Boeing, Honeywell, all these defense contractors, what they want to do. And that's what we're watching. And so I think that while this criticism is good, it's also not the total picture because it's a little too naive of a criticism, as if like the Biden administration is only acting based off of like, we don't want to be perceived as weak by the Republicans. That's part of it. But also he's genuinely like a moderate Republican himself, so he agrees with a lot of these policies. And beyond that, again, he's going to do the bidding of the establishment because they're deeply part of the establishment. So they really think a lot of these decisions that they're making are like, well, duh, this is, of course, what we're going to do. So, you know, to go through some of the specifics here, talking about backing off of the Iran deal. Yes, the correct thing is to just jump right back into that. And then, you know, the easiest victory of all time. But no, you can't look weak on Iran. So now you try to badger them into getting back in first, even though we violated it, which makes absolutely no sense. Um, now Biden's being super hawkish on China, which I disagree with. I mean, it sort of reminded me, the way that the right is now leaning into China sort of reminds me of like Russiagate, how the rhetoric from the Democrats was always hawkish on Russia. The rhetoric from the Republicans is always hawkish on China. There's nothing about sitting down, talking, negotiating, getting along, working together. It's all like, you know, you're weak and you need to be stronger and need to go after them. And I don't like that, that path. Then he brings up Cuba. It was under the Obama administration that they eased tensions with Cuba. And then Trump ramped them back up, and Biden hasn't changed anything yet. It's under review. Now, I get it. You could say, hey, he's, on, he's trying to do a bunch of other things first. There are some quick things he could definitely do in regards to Cuba that would be positive, but he hasn't done them. You know, Fareed doesn't even bring up Afghanistan and Iraq. But if you think about it, Afghanistan and Iraq, I mean, that's the clearest example of a continuation of Trump's foreign policy and Obama's foreign policy and W. Bush's foreign policy, because we're staying in Afghanistan right now. We're staying in Iraq right now. If anything, they move more in the other direction. They had this agreement by May to get out of, I think it was Afghanistan, and they're already reneging on that deal and saying, no, we want to stay there longer. So, listen, it's just substantively they're just wrong. These policies are terrible policies. But it's not, they don't really care about, that's not really their end goal. A lot of the end goal is to keep the gravy train going for the establishment of the military-industrial complex and be, you know, the, the world's serious leader. That's how they think of themselves. So it's just, they're all, to one extent or another, they manage the empire. 
as opposed to having principled stands and, and really thinking these things through and, and acting in accordance with U.S. law and international law, that's all out the window. So, but I, I must say, even though I think his, his criticism here is lacking a little bit, I really do like the fact that here you have somebody on CNN criticizing Biden's foreign policy and basically saying it's way too much like Trump, it's too right-wing, and that's unacceptable. And he brings up like the things, well, look at the things that Obama did that were a success, the Iran deal, what he did with Cuba. One party brings up his TPP. Totally disagree on that one, but that's more, that has more to do with economic policy than just foreign policy, and I don't know why he threw that in. I don't think that would have been a success. I think the deal was actually horrendous. But anyway, I digress from that. Point is, he's correct in saying that the things that were real successes, like the Iran deal was a real success. Easing tensions with Cuba was a real success. The few areas where he did really well, it was totally bucking the consensus and the orthodoxy and the conventional wisdom in Washington, D.C. And what Biden is doing is jumping right back into the conventional wisdom and the orthodoxy in Washington, D.C. And so if he wants to keep doing that, he's going to be a mess. He's going to be totally forgettable on this stuff. He's going to perpetuate the empire, keep committing war crimes, and it's going to be unacceptable. And at this point, at least we have a CNN host who's on the record saying this is too right wing. Okay, next. The idiots on the show The Five um, were or decided to fearmonger about higher wages. Take a look. Living up to his promise to be one of the most progressive presidents ever, and it's still not enough for the far left. The so-called centrist is now under pressure to go nuclear to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Bernie Sanders pressing Biden's budget office nominee. Will you, at this point, um, commit to doing what President Biden and I and many others want to see happen? And that is help us move to end starvation wages in America by raising the minimum wage over a period of several years. Absolutely. And squad member Corey Bush says 15 bucks an hour is only the beginning. You know, we have to start with a $15 an hour minimum wage. It's the start. Like, it should be higher than that right now, but that's where we are. So we have to at least give people that. Well, Greg, way more than 100,000 restaurants went out of business last year. I guess that's just not enough. Yeah, I guess, uh, first off, we've got to address the new phrase, starvation wages, okay? The idea that people in the U.S. are starving when 40% of young adults oh, age 20 to 39 are obese. Uh, the number goes to 45% when you're my age, early 40s. Um, you, can make, you can make an argument about the minimum wage without suggesting the other side wants you to starve people to death. So let's not give in to, these, to their language. And people forget what minimum wage is, to your point about restaurants. It's the starting point, not the finishing point. You're only supposed to be on that first rung for three to six months. We all made minimum wage. I made $3.35 an hour, and you couldn't wait to get up higher. It was actually incitement, really positive incitement to work hard. And the point is always forgotten by these economic deniers that someone at that pizza joint already makes 15 bucks, and he's been there for a year. So when you raise the minimum wage for that entry level, what do you got to do for everybody else, including that other guy? 
You've got to raise their salary, too, because you can't have the minimum wage be the same as that other guy, because then he wasn't making minimum wage before. <gasps> you, you raise wages, and then you might have to raise more wages? <laughs> the horror. Okay, it's so funny to me that half the time they talk like this, and then the other half the time they pretend... <clears throat> The Republicans are the party of the working class, and we fight for the working class. And, like, look at Trump. He's all about the blue-collar guy. And we're against the establishment and the elites. It's like Tucker's fake populist tap dance. But look at how they talk. I've never heard a segment more elitist than this. If you raise wages for some, you might have to raise wages for more. I file that under the category of, awesome, bro. Now, listen, to be fair to them, their argument is, hey, if you do it, there's going to be widespread job loss and unemployment's going to go up because businesses can't afford it, basically. Assuming for a second that's true, not necessarily true, but let's assume for a second that's true. There are other ways to address that problem. Set up a program to subsidize these small businesses so that they can afford the $15, but they're only subsidized if they keep the workers on at a $15 wage. That's one way to handle it. The other way that we've talked about before is if we did a living wage law that was a little more targeted, so you do it like by county or something. So, you know, in rural Nebraska, the minimum wage might be $9.25 because that's a living wage there. But in New York City, it might be $23 or $27 an hour or whatever it is because that's a living wage there. So there are ways to make it more affordable for people given their own context and where they are and how much a dollar is really worth there, so on and so forth. So there are other ways to address that. They jump right to just don't raise the wage. Whatever you do, just don't raise the wage. And by the way, now, to get to that claim, guys, how many times have I brought this up on the show? In Australia, they have about a $15 minimum wage, the equivalent of about 15 U.S. dollars. That's what their minimum wage is. Their unemployment rate is the exact same as our unemployment rate. If a $15 minimum wage was going to lead to widespread unemployment, then why isn't their unemployment significantly higher than ours? Why, isn't, why aren't they a hellscape? Because it doesn't necessarily do that. Now, listen. You have to do it intelligently, right? So you have to phase it in over time because it avoids some of these problems. Like, don't get it twisted. It needs to be addressed in a reasonable, nuanced, complex, intelligent way. It does. Um, but they, they just want to hand wave it all away and say, we can't do it for reasons X, Y, and Z. We have, there are some places in the United States that have $15 minimum wages already. It hasn't led to widespread job loss. It just hasn't. Okay, now if there is a marginal uptick, again, there are other ways to handle that. There are other ways to address that. And the funniest thing to me is when he says these economics deniers, this is like the oldest fucking dumb right wing trick in the book where like the substance of the conversation aside completely and all you have to do is smugly assert to whoever you're talking to, you don't agree with my opinion on this, bro? Economics denier much? I guess you don't even know basic economics, bro. I guess you don't even know basic economics. If this was going to be so catastrophic, why is it they already have it in Australia and they're doing fine? Why is it that in some Scandinavian countries, it's not even that they have a minimum wage. They don't. They have almost universal collective bargaining. So the wage floor is way above effectively $15 an hour. Why have those countries not totally imploded? Perhaps because... It's bullshit, and this is propaganda to keep wages low uh, in order for the wealthy to make more money, because that's who they're representing on Fox News. They're representing corporations, the wealthy, the business owners. That's what they're doing. 
So um, I like how they're mocking Corey Bush when Corey Bush says, well, you know, it, actually $15 is a start. It should be higher than that. I get it that these guys are against, you know, poor people and, and workers at the bottom of that economic ladder. But listen, if the minimum wage kept up with worker productivity, it would be over $20 an hour already. It would be. It would be. So the idea that that's like something to scoff at. No, the dumber position, what they're saying, of like just leave the wage as it is. And by the way, if they're really being honest, they lean in a more anarcho-capitalist direction where they would want to have no minimum wage at all. Um, then they bring up the business closures. Yeah, but that has a lot more to do with COVID than it has to do with the wage. Again, there are places that already have $15 minimum wage, and there hasn't been widespread job loss. Um, then he says he's mocking the idea that it's a starvation wage and that some people in America are hungry because he says 40% of Americans are obese. 40% is also the number that we read maybe two or three months ago when there were food lines for people. 40% of the country was um, food insecure is the term I'm looking for. We all saw the lines at these food banks, the endless lines. Imagine scoffing at the, the, the pain people are feeling now or downplaying it or acting like it's not actually that bad. You think it's not that bad because you're comfy as fuck, Greg Gutfeld. And then this will, this will be the final point I'll make here, but I hate the argument of, like, minimum wage is the starting point and not the finishing point. Like, we all made it, and then we worked our way up. What about the people who don't work their way up, Greg? And there are a lot of them. We're always going to need people to do these jobs, always. Machines can never take over all the jobs, right? Maybe they can. I don't know. I'll put a little asterisk by that point. But for now, you can't have machines do all those jobs. So you're always going to need people to do those jobs. So then the question becomes, should we pay people enough to survive in those jobs? Imagine saying no. Imagine saying, no, I think you should work full time and not make enough money to survive. Well, then own it that you're in favor of, you know, wage slavery. Own it. I want you to work full time and not make enough money to survive. So in other words, you're not lazy. It's not like you don't have morals or ethics or you're not a good person. You're a good person who has a job and has work ethic and you work full time and you don't make enough money to survive. And he says, that's fine. That's fine. Because it's supposed to be just a starting point, not a finishing point. Not everybody can work their way up. And we're always going to need people to do these jobs. So the question is, how much are we going to actually value them? You know? And it's not that much to say people deserve a living wage. They deserve to make enough money to meet their needs in these situations. And actually, it would cut the size of the government because the social safety net would be reduced if we had a $15 minimum wage. Because people no longer need to make up the difference and run to the government to get help from social safety net programs because they will be making enough money just through their paycheck. So it would shrink the size of government. Isn't that something you're supposed to support as a conservative? No, because the bottom line is, these guys are on the side of the corporations and the billionaires and the owners. That's what it is. And they're not pro-worker. They were never pro-worker. And, you know, they couldn't make it any more clear. They are fear-mongering at the idea of raising wages. Okay. All right, guys. Let me take final break here, and then when we come back, I still got some amazing stuff, including the right is trying to do their own version of the squad and some new numbers on what percentage of the American people want um, a third party. It's incredible. Stay right there. 
bitches, we back. We are back in this motherfucker. Okie dokie. Alright, let's make fun of the right-wing version of the squad. (laughs) The right is trying desperately to promote their own version of the squad, and it's hilarious. Uh, Congresswoman Maliotakis, let's start with you for one moment. Um, You guys didn't necessarily name yourself or decide, I guess, to to brand yourselves as the Freedom Force, but here we are. That's who, that's who you are. So what does it mean? What distinguishes the Freedom Force from other Republicans in Congress, and what is the mission? Well, I think there are many that actually do share our mission, but the goal here is to fight back against those who are trying to fundamentally change our nation, those who want to destroy jobs and completely wipe out industries, those who are trying to change our history, trying to cancel our founding fathers, those who want to indoctrinate our children and strip our freedoms and liberties. I think what our message to the American people and to those who are attempting to do this is that this is a very slippery slope. It starts with this, the government gets more and more control, and eventually we are in a socialist society, and that is what our families have fled, and we know and want to share that with people, because I don't know that everyone sees what is happening right before our eyes. Little by little, our liberties are being taken away as government grows and grows, and these individuals must be stopped, and we're going to be out there with that message and pushing back as well on the House floor. Congressman Salazar, you know, I think 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, certainly Democrats, maybe even some of those in the middle would have waved their hands at Republicans claiming threats of socialism. In other words, they would have said, oh, that's hyperbole. But, you know, this isn't just theoretical, as, as Congressman Malitakis pointed out, for you and others. Your families have experienced socialism firsthand. You know how it comes, and you know its cost as well. And that is, that's exactly right, and what Nicole said is it's right on point. We have a point of reference. We know what the other side looks like. We know what democratic socialism is, misery, oppression, and exile. And the problem is that they're putting socialism, and then on, on, in front of it, they're putting a pretty word, either a democratic socialism or pragmatic socialism or, or pretty socialism. It doesn't matter. Socialism. Socialism is an economic model that has failed. Freedom, free market, liberty, democracy, that is what we need. The American exceptionality is what 300 years ago was created, and we need to continue with that American agenda. If we go to socialism, we go to something called the banana republic agenda. We cannot do that for the future of my children and your children. So that's why we're here, united, together. And we created the Freedom Force and uh, I'm delighted to be part of it. That is deliciously ironic at the end there when she says, we don't want to be like a a banana republic with this banana republic agenda of the left. The term banana republic comes from the banana wars where the U.S. government, the CIA, they were toppling governments in Central and South America so that we could steal their resources like bananas. The United Fruit Company basically was, uh, was part of this. They were in on this. It was like, you know, the U.S. government and the CIA overthrowing uh, democratic countries so that we could just steal their resources. 
and you know, help our corporations. So think about how ironic that is. As she's going after the left, she's, she says, like, well, under socialism, we'll be like a banana republic. Meanwhile, the term banana republic is really like it's an indictment of U.S. imperialism and the U.S. overthrowing democratic governments and putting authoritarians in there. So it, just, it, it, it flips the reality right on its head. It's really amazing. So one of the things she said is, I have so many notes jotted down here because it was crazy from beginning to end, but she talks about freedom, free, a free market, liberty, and democracy. That's what we need to be for. Stop and think about that. She's slamming socialism, but she says we need freedom, free market, liberty, and democracy. One of the definitions of socialism is when you democratically control the workplace. So it's not just like, it's not just you democratically elect your leaders, your political leaders, and then like that's government stuff and then the economy is separate and it's over here. If you democratically control the workplace, that's socialism. So like all the workers vote on the decisions of the companies, that's socialism. And she says we need democracy. Socialism is just an expansion of democracy to the workplace. So again, even by her own words, like, hello, there is, like, there is no conflict here. There is no conflict. And by the way, when they say we want uh, freedom in a free market, they mean a free market in that the business owners can do whatever they want to do. That's what they mean. They mean the way a free market works in their conception of it is that all these businesses are little tyrannies. They're little dictatorships with a rigid hierarchy structure where the boss can tell everybody what to do. The boss, and then the boss has the manager underneath them, and the manager is like, you know, the foot soldier of the boss, and you got to keep the workers in line. And so that's what she means by free market. Funny enough, it's a more um, tyrannical structure. You know, and so to act like you're against tyranny when your idea is to have a marketplace that is tyrannical, it's just, it's so ironic. And they talk about freedom like, okay, so freedom, do you guys support legalizing marijuana? Do you guys support legalizing all drugs? That's true freedom. Do you support legalizing physician-assisted suicide? That's true freedom. Like, do you support, these words matter. And they like to use the labels without actually thinking about what it entails. Um, one of the parts, they say, we know what the other side looks like. Misery, oppression, and exile. And I always like, these conversations are always so dumb. Because there's not even a good faith effort to view the other side in a charitable light. It's just smear from beginning to end. So, listen... All the examples that they would give as like failures of socialism or whatever, I would submit to you that the issues with these places is that it's, there's authoritarianism. And whenever you have authoritarianism, it's not going to end well. So whenever there's like, you know, government control of, of the press so that there is no free press and all you get is the propaganda, like that's a problem. But when they say socialism, you know, what it looks like is misery, oppression and exile – I mean, well, what do they have to say about the Scandinavian countries, which are way more socialist 
than we are. They're further on the spectrum towards socialism than we are. There is more democratic control of companies. There is like a heavily regulated um, economy and, and welfare state. Those are some of the most objectively productive and happy places in the world. And they just hand wave that aside. And usually what they like to do is say, oh, well, those, they're good because of capitalism. We're more capitalist and we're worse off. So that's obviously not the answer. But like they don't, anything that's inconvenient to their narrative, they just don't, they just put it off the table. So they're always going to go to like Venezuela as the go-to example. And by the way, whenever they bring it up, there's no conversation at all about ruthless sanctions that really, really hurt you know, Venezuela. That's not to say that all the problems are brought about from the outside, but certainly some of them are, but they would overlook all that. Um, they say eventually the government gets more and more control and will be in a socialist society. Fear-mongering that the government's going to get more and more control, I'd love to see what these people believe about the Patriot Act. I'd love to see what they said about Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. I agree. In some ways, I don't want the government to get more and more control. I don't want it to be creeping authoritarianism like it is with the Patriot Act, like it is with the intelligence agencies. I mean, we're going after journalists, a war on whistleblowers. They bring it up as if it's like there's a boogeyman problem that's socialism, but obviously none of these, we don't have any of these problems here, even though we do have a lot of these problems here when it comes to authoritarianism. Um, and it, it's just, the whole thing is goofy. They're coming up with the idea, we're the freedom force, and where to counter the squad. Funny enough, freedom force for a name sounds incredibly forced. Sounds incredibly forced. Um, and whenever you define yourself as, we're just going to tell you what we're against, you know, and that's really what they're doing. They said, our mission is to fight back against those who want to, I love this, straw men all day long, eliminate jobs, wipe out industries, cancel our founding fathers, and eliminate liberty. You know, the equivalent of this, this would be like if I talk about them and everything I say is just like, you guys are all fascists and white supremacists. That's what I think you are. I don't provide any arguments. I don't provide any evidence. That would be like the equivalent of the smug-ass commentary that they're doing. My mission is to fight back against fascists who want to do fascist things, you know, bro? That's what I'm against. Again, I'll read it again. Our mission is to fight back against those who want to eliminate jobs, wipe out industries, cancel our founding fathers, and eliminate liberty. I don't, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around the fact that people like this exist. It's like they're actively trying to not have a real conversation. And they're just like caricatures of themselves, parodies of themselves. So anyway, Freedom Force is going to be a dud. It's not going to go anywhere. They're utterly ridiculous. And they're incapable of having a good faith discussion. Okay, next. This is quite the story from Vice News. Apparently, unemployed Americans are resorting to extreme measures and techniques in order to survive the COVID economic depression. cartels as highly organized criminal enterprises, and they are. But for most of their labor force, the drug trade is just work. 
and its work that remained available even during the pandemic. That's what drew in this American woman, who was recruited to drive mess into the U.S. She lost her job early in the pandemic and didn't qualify for unemployment, leaving her with few options to support her children. So which side of the border do you live on? I live in North in the United States. Are you from there? Were you born there? Yes, I'm born. So you're an American citizen? Yes. Uh, I know a lot of people who live along the border often kind of live on both sides, right? They have yeah. family on both sides. They go back and forth pretty often. Yeah. I used to live next to the border, so it would be easy for me to come and go. How does someone like you wind up doing this? Did they approach you? Or? It's a very small world, and like we, we know everybody. It's more hard to find what you're all talking about. We made a call. That's the place where I was looking at. Right when the pandemic started? Yeah. I didn't have no um, way to provide for my family. I don't want to keep doing that for a very long time. But getting easy money, it's hard to leave it too. So, you drive your car over the border into Mexico. Yes. And then someone takes it from you at that yeah. point. And then they give it back to you. Yeah. I will just go and pick it up whenever it's ready. They'll just call me and I'll just pick it up. I'm just supposed to cross the border every single day, and um, even if I don't have anything. So you cross every single day? You cross the border every day? Yes. So the car is registered, and it's like a common car. How much do they pay you? Um, usually it's 4000 for the time it costs. Have you ever had any close calls, like moments where you thought you might get caught? Yes. Sometimes they'll um, send me to secondary. They search the whole car, bring the dogs. That's when my heart starts hoping and just feel like, oh my God, I'm just done. First things first, uh, the drug should be legal. And it makes it more dangerous that they're illegal because when they're illegal, you have to go work for some cartel or gang. And whenever there's a dispute, it's solved with violence and guns in the street. Uh, when it's legal, taxed, and regulated, when there are disputes, it's solved in courts where people wear suits and ties. So the fact that it's a black market makes it way more dangerous. So that's first things first. But beyond that, this is a total and utter failure of the U.S. government, a complete abdication of responsibility. Because we have a pandemic, we have a giant economic downturn that I think it's fair to call depression, and the people are not being sufficiently cared for. And remember, people pay taxes. So when you talk about cutting stimulus checks, in most cases, people are just getting back their own money. You know, there are plenty of people who are not net, who will net receive more money, but that's okay especially at a time like this, where there's, where there's extreme pain out there. And listen, there would be fewer people turning to measures like this if we had a recurring UBI check, if we had a recurring stimulus payment so that people could pay the bills and get by. Way more people would be able to, you know, when the economy was shut down, just sit at home and do whatever to pass the time. When you see this, it really makes you feel like we live in a failed state, doesn't it? There's a pandemic, there's a depression, the government is not providing, and U.S. citizens are turning to measures like this. People, and they make clear in this, this is people who normally wouldn't ever do this, but since the money issues are so extreme, people are turning to this. 
You know, I mean, we were telling you before the pandemic, it was nearly 80% of the American people who were living paycheck to paycheck. Imagine what it's like now. 40% of the country was food insecure, according to an article from two or three months ago. 40% of the country. I mean, that's mind boggling. 30% couldn't pay, you know, rent or their mortgage. And now we have the temporary freezes on it. But what happens when those protections are gone? I mean, this is really as terrible a situation since the Great Depression, since the Great Depression. So you see a story like this, and it's almost like, well, yeah, what did you expect? This is what people are going to turn to. Okay, next. Here we go, baby. Here we go. So Gallup uh, did a a new poll, and this is fascinating. Support for a third party in the U.S. just hit a record high point. It's a record. So 62% of the country says a third party is needed. That's up from 57% in September. That's already incredibly high, but now it's 62%. This is the highest support for a third party by one percentage point, and a record high 63% of Republicans favor a third party. So that's even more interesting, because what that means is most Republicans are really liking the idea of a right-wing third party now, and I would guess it's namely because Donald Trump sort of floated the idea, and there was leaks about this in the media, that he wants to start the Patriot Party which will be, you know, to counter the Republicans. And um, so if he were to do that, see, this is the dynamics here are fascinating because it's effectively rigged in this country against third parties. I mean, they make it impossible for you to win with a third party. They really do. It's, so basically, whenever people try to do the third party stuff, if I'm being honest, it's self-disenfranchisement. It's like, hey, go waste all your energy over here, and thank you, we appreciate that. Love the establishment. So that's really the dynamic at play here. But if you have the former president of the United States do this, okay, can he get 10%, 15% of that Republican base that will stick with him and the Patriot Party and no matter what, even if they have to just write the name in, you know, because it might be a pain in the ass to get anything on the ballot. Who knows if they'll be able to get on the ballot in these states? But, I mean, think about it. If he can – if he can – make it so that these Patriot Party people are always getting 10 to 15% of the vote from the Republicans. That alone destroys the Republican Party. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. That would just flat out destroy the Republican Party, and it would clear the path for a Democrat to get into office till the end of time. Because the way it would function in reality is there would be a splitting of that right-wing base vote, and they would never be able to get enough money, unless then they do some sort of uh, ranked choice voting thing. See, that, at that point, you might have the Republicans support a ranked choice voting idea just so that they could still stay competitive in a situation like that. But um, listen, in my opinion, go ahead, Trump. Start your third party. I wish you the best, because if he does that, it'll just utterly destroy the Republicans. Now, beyond that, I do want to say, because it is true, like, I, I love the idea of having a multi-party system, but in order to do that, we need to 
change the structure of the entire system, and nobody should lie to themselves on that point. You know what I mean? Unless and until we actually change the structure of the system, it's just self-disenfranchisement and a waste of time. Now, in an ideal world, would I change the system? Absolutely. Like I said, I want to have a multi-party system, um, but we don't have that system. So my approach to this has always been, I'm not going to actively, if there's third-party attempts on the left, and there is, I mean, the Green Party is usually on the ballot in 46 to 48 states. I'm not going to badmouth them, put them down, voter shame people, because I, like, I want to see some sort of success come from that. I really don't think it's ever going to happen, but I want to see it. And so since I want to see it, my general approach to all this stuff is what I call an all-the-above approach. And I asked Noam Chomsky about this, and he actually said the exact same thing, and that made me happy. He was like, I just think everybody, we should throw everything at the wall and put all of our effort into a variety of avenues, and that's going to lead to our best you know, chance of success in the long term. And so, I mean, that's what my instinct says. My instinct says the same thing, that in the long term, yeah, you want to have – you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket – so you don't put all your eggs in the taking over the Democratic Party basket, which I think is the, the way that is really the only structural way you can succeed at this point in time. But I'm not going to actively um, oppose people for trying the third party path, because as long as I think your heart's in the right place, then you have my support. And a lot of the people who are trying to get some sort of third party, their heart's in the right place. Again, I don't think it's going to work, but it doesn't really matter. If there's any chance it helps even a little bit, fine, then do it and I'll support you. Um, but there also is, I should say this as well, it's not going to be what people think, which is like a third party will get so viable on the left that then the Democrats will have to take them seriously and form a coalition and they'll start listening to the concerns of this third party. It's not going to happen because we already saw the dynamic. Look at 2016. The Green Party got what, 2% of the vote, something incredibly small. And it's not like the Democrats said, well, now we must work with them because we needed their votes to win. It was the opposite. They started shitting on them more and blaming them for the loss. And so I think they'll just keep shitting on them and blaming them for the loss. And um, that's, we have to, that to look forward to forever. Like, that's how it's going to unfold. But again, people, we need to exhaust every avenue to try to win. So if people go down this path, by all means. And listen, on paper, like in theory, it is the approach because, 62% of the country wants it. It just so happens that the system is beyond rigged against it, that they make it fucking impossible unless you do structural reform. You know what I mean? So, but since, since everybody's heart is on this page, including mine, like my heart is on this page, that like fresh start idea, um, you should exhaust it and see what happens. And hopefully there's some upside that comes out of it that I haven't you know, been able to determine or break down yet. Um, but there's a reason why this is a record high number, ladies and gentlemen, and that's because the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are not even close to representing you. And people get that, man, on a gut instinct level. Everybody understands that. Okay. I just realized now I forgot to do the Mitch McConnell story on impeachment. So I'm going to do that for you guys, okay?
McConnell gave uh, a speech on the Senate floor during the impeachment of Trump, where Trump got off. And um, this, people made a big deal of this in the media. I want to play the video for you so you could see exactly what he was trying to say, and then we'll dissect it. There's no question. Go ahead. That President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. The people who stormed this building believed they were acting on the wishes and instructions of their president. The president did not act swiftly. He did not do his job. He didn't take steps so federal law could be faithfully executed and order restored. No. Instead, according to public reports, he watched television happily, happily, as the chaos unfolded. He kept pressing his scheme to overturn the election. Now, even after it was clear to any reasonable observer that Vice President Pence was in serious danger, even as the mob carrying Trump banners was beating cops and breaching perimeters, the president sent a further tweet attacking his own vice president. Now, predictably and foreseeably, under the circumstances, members of the mob seem to interpret this as a further inspiration to lawlessness and violence, not surprisingly. The Senate's decision today does not condone anything that happened on or before that terrible day. It simply shows that senators did what the former president failed to do. We put our constitutional duty first. I think that's such a Weasley argument. He basically says the most extreme version of events that the Democrats are saying is correct. Substantively, the Democrats are correct that he egged on an insurrection, he prodded them on, he, uh, he's responsible. He's responsible morally, ethically, legally, and otherwise. It's all true. That's what he's saying. And then, and then he's like, uh, but not guilty. Why? He's trying to use a technicality. The technicality is, well, he's not in office, and the punishment would be removal from office, so since he's not in office, it's a moot point, so not guilty. I think that's really Weasley. I think it's true that, like, the point of impeachment is to remove somebody from office. And so it was kind of a waste of time to do it in the first place. But once you do it, you have to make the decision based on the merits of the case. And if Mitch McConnell believes everything he said there about how it is Trump's fault, then you, you say he's guilty. You say he's guilty. And, yes, he won't be removed from office, but, you know, at least the, the historical record will show he was, he was impeached through the House, and then he was also convicted in the Senate. And that might have the other upside of, like, you know, 
um, him not being able to run again in 2024. Although that's, I think that might be an open legal question. I'm not totally sure on that one. But like, I just find that so Weasley. It really is Weasley. He's guilty. He did it. I 100% agree, but not guilty because some bullshit technicality nonsense. Because really what McConnell did here, this was the ultimate political maneuver. Like, I don't think he's telling you what he really believes. I think he's trying to craft the narrative in his mind that appeases everybody he wants to appease. So he wants to appease the Trump people, so he's voting not guilty. He wants the base to stay with him, that's why he's voting not guilty. But the strong condemnation, that's the signal he's sending out to the corporate donors, to the Republicans, saying, listen, you guys got to keep giving us money, and we're going to condemn him as, as forcefully as we possibly can, but you guys got to keep giving us money because we need the money and we need to win elections. So this was the way he decided to walk that line. And I think it was the ultimate political maneuver, but again, incredibly Weasley. Okay. Okay. All right, guys. I love y'all. Everybody have a great rest of the day. I will talk to you soon. I'm out. Peace.